man or an individual man is a microcosm of the universe, of what we call the macrocosm. And all of nature outside of us also exists within us. This idea of separation is an idea, something we made up. And I think that feeling of disconnection is at the root of a lot of, especially mental and emotional illness that we're currently experiencing. That's Colin Hudon, and this is The Ritual Podcast. The Rich Roll Podcast. Hey everybody, how you guys doing? What's happening? My name is Rich Roll. That is my God-given name, not a stage name. This is my podcast. Welcome to it. Thank you for dropping in on the show where each and every week I bring you compelling, thought-provoking conversations with some of the best and brightest minds in wellness, fitness, sports, entrepreneurship, basically the coolest people I can find, people who personally inspire me to be better with an eye on helping you achieve maximum vitality on this path towards greater self-actualization that we are all blazing together. Got Colin Hudon back on the show today. I think this is his third or fourth time on the podcast. For those of you who are new, Colin is a physician of Chinese medicine. He is a master healer. He is an impresario of tea. Uh, and just because he's awesome. And this presentation, which focuses on holistic health, was recorded live during our retreat in Ireland this past summer. Uh, it's just so on point and remarkably instructive. I think you guys are really going to enjoy it. So my birthday is coming up on October 20. I turned 51. <sighs> my head's exploding. I can't believe it. But I feel pretty good about it. I feel super fit. I feel strong. I feel alive. Things are going really well. Uh, quite a long way from where I was at 40 and a universe apart from where I was at 30, to be sure. I'm pretty much living my dream. I want for nothing. I don't need anything, especially any presents. So I thought I would use the occasion of my birthday to try to do some good because there are just too many people out in the world who are suffering, who need help. And it's help that uh, I can give and we can give together. So longtime listeners will remember my podcast with Scott Harrison, the founder of Charity Water. Well, that was a profound one for me, and I think for a lot of you guys. Uh, it was a discussion about the global water crisis that still lingers in my consciousness. I think about it every single day. If you missed it, please go back and listen to it. It was RRP 305, I think from July this past summer. And it's all about how we in the developed world take clean water for granted. I mean, I basically live in a desert here in Los Angeles, and not once in my life, have I thought twice about my unlimited access to clean water? But so many people do not have this luxury. In fact, 663 million people live without clean water. That's nearly one out of every 10 people worldwide, which is just amazing. Diseases from dirty water kill more people every year than all forms of violence, including war. And every day, every single day, about 1,400 children die from diseases caused by unsafe water and poor sanitation. It's just unbelievable. And it doesn't have to be that way. Together, we can help solve this totally solvable problem. So I decided to use my birthday to help Charity Water build wells and filters that provide clean water to communities around the world. And to do that, I need your help. So I'm asking that you step up and help make this difference for those in need. I'm asking for $51 from each of you, $1 for every year that I've breathed air and drank water, clean water on this planet Earth. 100% of this 
will be used to build clean water projects. And my goal is to raise $51,000, which will provide clean water to over 1,500 people who have never before had such access. It's an act that will change their lives for generations to come. And I just think that's so powerful and incredible. And what's really cool is that when uh, these water projects are complete, Charity Water will send all of us tons of photos and GPS coordinates so we can see up close the impact uh, and the exact community that we were able to help. So I'm really inspired by this mission. Many of you guys have already heeded the call contributing to The Spring, which is Charity Water's monthly subscription service. That's been an incredibly successful campaign that has already contributed to four, maybe five at this point. Wells, uh, building wells, which is helping thousands of people. And I thank you for that from the bottom of my heart. Uh, I'm incredibly grateful, as is Charity Water, and of course, those who are directly impacted. But I also think that we can do more. So please check out my birthday campaign, which you can find at my.charitywater.org forward slash richroll. My.charitywater.org forward slash richroll. I'll add that link to the show notes, of course, and please consider a gift. I'm asking for $51 because I'm turning 51. Uh, if that's too much, donate what you can. Totally fine. I welcome everybody. And if you're feeling super generous, more, of course, is even better. Uh, your generosity isn't just appreciated. It's needed. It's really needed now more than ever. And together, we're powerful. Together, I think we really can change the world. I'm super proud to announce my next venture, Voicing Change Media. This beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. Okay, Colin Hudon. Colin, for those of you who are new to the show, is an herbalist. He's an acupuncturist. He is a physician of traditional Chinese medicine and Taoist arts, as well as the founder and owner of Living Tea, livingtea.net, which entails Colin traveling across China, Taiwan, and Malaysia a couple times a year in search of the finest and rarest old growth teas and teaware in the world. He then imports it and he sells it to you guys directly to consumer. Colin originally learned the art of tea from tea master Wuda, who you will remember from the podcast. He's been on twice. In fact, we only know Wuda because of Colin. Uh, and then Colin began offering his tea experience to others in the form of tea ceremonies, which is kind of a form of moving meditation and living art. It's a really beautiful practice. People ask me all the time what tea I drink. The answer is I only drink tea from Colin from Living Tea. And I say this not because I have any financial or professional entanglement with Colin whatsoever. I don't. This is not an ad. It's just phenomenal tea. I think it's the best tea available to the consumer. And in anticipation of this podcast, Colin was cool enough to create a special offer for you guys to get his tea at reduced prices, including an awesome new subscription service he calls Tea Club, in which he takes all the guesswork out of all these exotic teas and sends you his selection of seasonal bests quarterly, including all kinds of 
amazing extra information. It's really cool. So for more information on that, stick around to the end of the podcast. After the conversation, I'll provide you with all the details. Again, I don't benefit personally from any of this. I have no professional uh, relationship with Colin. I just love the guy and I'm happy to help get the word out about what he's doing. It's awesome stuff. And I think you guys will really enjoy it. In any event, this is a presentation on why we need to focus on health from a holistic perspective, an approach that encompasses not just body, but also mind, emotion, and spirit. It's about how to move past living in our heads, lost in thought, addicted to thought and information, disconnected by leveraging meditation as foundational to health. And it's also a primer on what we can glean, what we can learn from traditional Chinese methods of medicine and healing, beginning with an understanding, an embrace of the fact that man does not live outside nature, that we are all a microcosm of the macrocosm, and how health can be improved by learning to live more synchronously, more in accordance with natural laws and seasonal rhythms. All right. I know that was a long intro. There was just so much I wanted to say. Thanks for sticking with me, but let's let Colin say the rest. Well, we're really lucky to have uh, Colin with us here, who's going to share quite a bit of wisdom with us today. Uh, Obviously, one of the predominant themes of, of this week and kind of what Julie and I do is health, health with a capital H, and health with a with a small h, right? And what does health mean? How do we define health? It's great to eat plant-based. We can talk about our kale salads and our workouts, and we can Instagram them, and that's all awesome. Uh, but how can we uh, go beyond the kale, right? How can we sort of notch things up beyond just the greens that are on our plate, to uh, you know, address not only our mental and emotional health, which is something we've been working with Julie on throughout the week, but also how can we get more specific and granular about our nutritional health, right? Is it enough to just eat organic food, plant-based food? Uh, and what Colin's gonna talk about a little bit today um, through sharing his expertise, is how we can go next level with that. What are the foods that we can eat? What are the herbs that we can incorporate into our life to balance our adrenal glands, to you know modulate our our hormonal health? Uh, how do we you know achieve better balance through understanding how these micronutrients and macronutrients and different foods that we can eat, uh, how do those impact you know our our systems on a on a more cellular or organ level. Um, so with that said, I'm just going to turn it over to Colin and let him run the show. Is that, I've accurate? Got my own microphone. Is that an accurate uh, introduction for you? I'd say it was relatively <laughs> accurate. <laughs> Where was uh, I off? Well, I, at the end, I'll open it up to some question and answers. So if you want, if you do want to get more, more granular about specific health with a little h questions, uh, I, I'll do my best to answer those. Um, but my, my interest initially or, or really is to talk about health with a capital H first to give primacy to that uh, and then and then go a little more into China, to what health is in terms of Chinese medicine because uh, that's the system that I've got the most uh, experience in. That's, I think that I'll, I'll, I'll do my best to make that clear yeah um, 
Sure, I'll do, I'll do that in a sentence. Uh, health with a capital H, I'm referring to holistic health, meaning your relationship to life itself, your orientation in life. Uh, and it also means the relationship between mind, emotion, body, spirit. And uh, so what health means, despite maybe some, some physical ailment or health with a small h, which is, you know, how many phyto, the, the phytonutrients in a particular thing. It's, yeah, health with a small h is really more focused on the body. Um, and that's, uh, it was significantly. Um, so I've written down some ideas so that my run on sentences don't turn into digressions that never end, or else we'll be here all day. Um, so the two kind of disclaimers I want to give at the beginning um, are one that I don't think any ideas are really truly original. Um, we all borrow ideas from all over the place constantly, even when we don't uh, know that we are. And one of our culture in the West, one of our favorite things is to claim originality to ideas that are definitely not original, uh, which I think oftentimes is uh, really unfortunate because we don't honor a lot of the indigenous roots of a lot of the wisdom. Uh, like Rich and I were talking about, you know, the origins of bulletproof coffee, or we could open that can of worms and talk all day about it. But um, so I'm not claiming originality to any of these ideas. Um, I pull a lot from different teachers and things. So if you hear something unoriginal, I'm not claiming it to be original. So that's the first disclaimer. Uh, the second one is I don't want to give the impression that I have any idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> what I do know is that uh, we're tethered to a blue ball in space. We're spinning at 67,000 miles per hour, roughly, uh, through space. And if anybody tells you that they really know what's going on, you might want to raise an eyebrow. Um, we have a lot of ideas. We have a lot of uh, beliefs and ideologies. Um, but the idea of real objective truth is something that I'm highly skeptical of. I think truth is pretty um, relative and perspectival and shifty. So, um, so I say that because uh, what I'd like to do is share some opinions, basically. And if there's something you don't like about those opinions, then you don't have to accept them. Um, so, so we'll start a little bit with health with a capital H. Um, so if you look at the, at the root of the word health, it comes from the Latin, um, I don't know what the Latin is actually, and that doesn't really matter. <laughs> That's sort of beside the point. But it shares the same etymological root as whole, as in wholeness, uh, and holy. And I think that's a really significant um, thing to acknowledge because it insinuates that health or healing has something to do with returning to or uh, an awareness of your original wholeness as a being, as a person. And that's really significant uh, to me. And in some ways, you could kind of just stop there. And that there's a lot to reflect on just in that idea. But it also insinuates this word holy. And we have sort of a stigma around what holiness is. And it's something that I think we have mixed ideas about. Um, H-O-L-Y, yes. Not holy like cheese. Like Swiss cheese. 
<laughs> yeah. So, um, so this is macrocosmic, and I'm just gonna just share a kind of stream of thoughts about it, which is which is related to health with a capital H. So, if you're going to wake up in life, then you're going to wake up. It's just something that a person, it's a decision that somebody makes. And if not, then you're, you're flirting with this idea. You're kind of, uh, you're teasing an idea. And most people who are on a, on a path of, of growth or trying to refine the way they're living, there's an aspect of that that has to do with this idea of waking up. But I think so much in our culture, we think that waking up means it's something we have to do. We have to get better at this. We have to improve this aspect of ourselves. We have to tweak the diet, work out more, be kinder. And we make a long list of things that we believe we have to do. And that list never ends. There's no conclusion. There's no point at which you go, ah, okay, I've gotten there finally. Uh, and it's a bit of a smoke and mirrors situation. And I think it's kind of a dangerous path to go down because what it does is leaves a constant sense of separation or dissatisfaction, a constant sense that you, you're, you're almost there, you know? And it's missing something really fundamental, which is, I think, our, our pre-existing pre wholeness. So that's something that I kind of want to talk about a little bit. Um, what I would say is that this idea of waking up, if you're here right now, then you're there's something about it that you're very serious or at least sincere in that question. There's an element of it uh, that's serious. But if you want to find out who you really are, this process, it's about doing what the whole universe is doing right here and right now. And I'm going to explain what I mean by that a little bit. You are what the whole universe is doing in the way that a wave is something the whole ocean is doing. Now, I'm starting to run the risk of sounding a little bit like Deepak Chopra in his most recent book, You Are the Universe. I think it might be You Are the Whole Universe, so I don't want to go too far down that, that path. But, but the real you is not a puppet or a chess piece that, that life is uh, pushing around. The real deep down you is the whole universe. And so when you die, you can't go into some dark room or some state of eternal non-existence. Um, here's a way, a way, a path of realization. This is a kind of a yoga. It's a reflection. It's a question. So try to imagine what it would be like to go to sleep and to never wake up. Now, if you think long enough or you reflect about that, um, you'll discover among other things, another question, something happens and you find the question what is it like to wake up having never gone to sleep? That's another yoga. And you could reflect on that for a while. So that, that was when you were born. You see, you can't have an experience of nothing because nature abhors a vacuum. Stick with me. We're going somewhere here. Um, so when you're dead, you must have the same kind of experience as when you were born. We all know very well that when people die, other people are born. And they're all you. They're all cells in the body of life with a capital L. So, for example, when I brew tea in the morning, it's not Colin brewing tea for people. It's life brewing tea through a Colin. 
And that might sound like kind of a stranger or poetic uh, description, but it's actually closer, it's a closer orientation to, to who and what we really are than our egos want us to believe. So the thing is that you can only experience life one at a time. Everybody is the same I. And when anyone comes into being, uh, that's you coming into being. So you don't have to remember the past in the same way that you don't have to remember how to work your thyroid gland or how to tell your heart to beat or your lungs to breathe. These happen naturally in the same way that uh, the sun just shines. It's not told what to do. You know, if you watch animals when they're born, um, they're not told how to learn to stand up or how to feed themselves or go to the bathroom or do any of these things. So we are this fantastically complex organism that's doing trillions of things all the time, and it doesn't require thought. And you're doing all this, and you've never had any education about how to do it. So there's a lot to, there's a lot to reflect on in there. But the suggestion is that we, in Western culture in particular, have given so much primacy to the mind, we're, we're profoundly addicted to thought, and we're profoundly addicted to information. You know, I imagine for some of you, the idea of not being checking your phone every 15 minutes on this retreat might, you know, you might like get the shakes or something. Um, and when I was seeing patients uh, at this clinic in Los Angeles, for a while, I would walk by the waiting room and I would look, I made it an, a habit, an alarm clock, like we were talking about yesterday, to stop and observe the people who are about to come in for a healing treatment. There was only one case in a year of observing people where a person wasn't just totally enmeshed in their information and their phone and the stimulation of information. So humanity's living in this state of being lost in thought. And I think if you take some time to be quiet, you observe that you can't stop this mind from constantly creating thoughts. And that creates a reality that we tend to spend our entire lives in. And so then you can kind of ask the question, well, if I'm spending all my time lost in thought and all of that thought is in the future or the past, then am I really living? You know, what am I, how am I really spending my time? Am I really here for my life? And I think if you look at that question quite a bit, it can be a little bit um, disconcerting when you start to get some answers about it. So that's, that's the introduction is now complete. <laughs> um, my suggestion, and this is kind of the belief around Chinese medicine, it's the, the basis of Chinese medicine, is that uh, man or an individual man is a microcosm of, of the universe, of the, what we call the macrocosm. And that all of nature outside of us also exists within us. That this idea of separation is, is an idea, something we made up. Or like I said this morning to some people, uh, the earth peopled. You know, it evolved in, and uh, man emerged out of the earth. And sometimes I'll ask people, um, and, and so does one of my teachers, uh, find the nearest earth, put your hand on the nearest nature. And, you know, people get up and like go stick their thumb in a planter or they walk outside and try to find a piece of grass or something. But rarely do people actually put their hand on their own chest or on themselves. 
And that is a, that is a form of disease. That's a fundamental misunderstanding about who and what we are. Um, and I think that feeling of disconnection is at the root of a lot of, especially mental and emotional illness that, uh, that we're currently experiencing. So, you know, if you even look at this uh, idea of man and nature, it's in our language. It's in all of the languages. So we have things like, you know, the fingers or arms of a lake, you know, the shoulder of a hill, the eye of a storm, the mouth of a cave, you know, the lip or foot of a cup, uh, the heart of the matter, the guts of an operation. And there are endless more examples of how we fundamentally, you know, you can understand so much about people through their language, we fundamentally have this understanding, and yet we have gone very, very far away from um, from the experience of our relationship to nature. So I think that's kind of the root of, of disease, and that's the stance also of Chinese medicine. So I've got to share an Einstein quote because it'll make me sound much smarter. Um, and I think, you know, I think we all agree he was a relatively intelligent human being. Um, and the suggestion is that to be healthy is first to feel whole, to be connected to your own wholeness. So he says, a human being is part of the whole called by us the universe, a part limited only by time and space. We experience ourselves, our thoughts and feelings as something separate from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of consciousness. And this delusion is a kind of prison for us, rest restricting us to our personal desires and affection for a few people nearest to us. Our task must be to free ourselves from the prison by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. The true value of a human being is determined by the measure and the sense in which they have obtained liberation from the self. We shall require a substantially new manner of thinking if humanity is to survive. So I think that's a pretty, you could unpack that quite a bit. Uh, but you know, Einstein is also a vegetarian, so I think he was really living according to these, these principles. And what he's talking about here is a liberation from this idea of a separate, a self separate from, from life itself. Um, there's a wonderful quote from a guy named Dogen, who's the the patriarch of Zen Buddhism. And he says, to study the way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be enlightened by all things. Again, I'm throwing things out here that we can unpack for probably a couple hours. But the first implication there is that we have to study ourselves. And something that I, I mentioned yesterday is that we give all our all importance and primacy to external reality, and we don't. We're we're not given the tools or educated in what it would mean to turn our attention inwards and give as much attention to the study of our own thoughts, uh, to stu the study of our own emotional bodies, and the study of sensation, physicality, impulses, desires, etc. And as a result, I think we tend to live. Uh, all in our heads for the most part. Is there anybody here who feels that they spend less than 90% of their lives not thinking about something aside from when you're sleeping? And if so, raise your hand. Okay, good. We've got one. 
Would you say that that's largely because of meditation? 100% because of meditation. So, so there you go. <laughs> um, meditation is one of the five healths that I'm going to talk about in just a moment here. And just to, to complete phase two of this little talk, um, you know, for myself personally, where a lot of this began and where I started getting into health and, uh, and wellness and wanting to understand something was I had an experience during my teenage years where I started to realize that I felt like there was something wrong in myself and not something morally wrong. Uh, something wrong in terms of the functioning of my, of my being. And what I realized was I could be thinking about something in one way. I could be feeling something different about it. Uh, and I could do something completely contrary to those two. And it seemed like the communication between my thoughts, my emotions, and my bodies, there wasn't a unified sense of agreement with almost anything I was doing. And at one time, I have a strong feeling about something, and then the next day, I'm actually more interested in thinking about it. And the day after that, I'm actually totally disinterested. And I started to recognize what I, um, I would call it a plurality of eyes, that there's not one unified eye making decisions and having thoughts, emotions, and sensations, and desires that are in any form of agreement. And it felt like a very strange way to live. And the more I talk to people around me, the more I realize that it seems most people have that. You know, one day they love somebody, the next day they don't particularly like that person. And they don't really necessarily know why. Um, or you wake up in the morning and you make a decision. Today I'm going to X. And then you don't do that thing. And in the evening you've forgotten about it. And then the next day you go, oh, right, there was that thing that was so important to me yesterday morning. What happened, you know? Or I think this is true with like addiction or things where people, one person wakes up in the morning and that person says, oh, how wonderful. I don't have any cravings for this thing. And I'm not going to do this thing today. But then by that evening, it's a completely different person who shows up. That's a very curious thing because it suggests that there's more than one, quote, self uh, running the show. So I use this analogy, uh, which is, it's like an estate. It's like... Balivolen, Volan, or Volane, or whatever we've decided to call it. Um, it's like this place, let's for fun just put it back in the 1700s when it was first created. Uh, and you've got three cooks and a person who attends to the bedrooms or cleans the bedrooms and another person who is the, the coffee brewer master and somebody who attends to the lawns, and somebody who attends to the horses and stables, and you have all these people, maybe 20 different people, um, serving a function or a role. But there's nobody home to guide and determine what all those roles should be, or, or when, or how they're done. And the master's gone away on vacation for a year, and all the people have forgotten what their role is. They've forgotten not only what their role is, but what they're supposed to do. And the cooks are trying to, you know, take care of the horses, but they've never taken care of horses. And the people in the stable have decided that they're, uh, they would rather clean the bedrooms. And, but they don't really like that, so they just give up. And they've decided just to drink tea on the patio. And 
Before long, it's kind of total chaos at the manor because the master's not home. Nobody's home to, to guide the, the operations of the, of the place. That, I think, is a really um, a more apt metaphor for what's going on inside of us uh, than maybe we'd like to admit. Meaning that oftentimes the emotions are doing what the mind should be doing, or the mind thinks it's, it needs to critically analyze a situation, which really you just need to feel into. Um, or the body is doing things that, that is really the place of the mind or the emotions. That there's this very dysfunctional thing. And then on top of that, you've got one person showing up one minute, another person showing up another minute. You know, it's like if you're walking down the street and you see a hat there's not usually somebody home to make the decision, I'm going to buy the hat. The hat buys you. And what that means is the hat starts off this process inside of maybe some craving, oh, I bet I'd look very nice in that hat. And I wonder if so-and-so would like the way I look in that hat. And I bet she would, yes. And before you know it, you've bought a hat, you've paid for it, you're wearing it, but you weren't really there to make that decision to buy the hat. It just sort of happened. So... All of this is to suggest that there's a lot of mechanical functioning going on in us. A lot of it's rooted in habit and conditioning and that we're really not there for most of these experiences. And to, it, that is not living from a place of real wholeness because we're not even really there for it. And if you go back to what I originally said, which is that health has something very important, very significantly to do with wholeness, in order to be whole, you also have to be home. And in this, in this, I'm suggesting that home is to be really present to yourself. And that's why I think meditation is probably the beginning of health. I think it's, it's where it begins. The ability to be calm and still, to quiet the mind, and to develop a balanced uh, way of seeing things. To both see yourself and also see the situation that you're involved in. And not just be at the whim of whatever, whoever shows up in that moment to buy the hat or pursue the young man or woman or whatever it is you're doing. So <clears throat> that's a little bit about health with a capital H. And it might not seem like it's really related, but I think it's actually primary. So phase two. So I noticed something when I was in school studying Chinese medicine, which was that um, I'd walk out of all my classes in Western medicine and biomedical science, and I'd have a, a very deflated feeling. I never felt great. And I'd walk out of my classes in Chinese medicine, always feeling really inspired and curious, and my mind would be very open. And, um, and I, I kind of observed that and said, I wonder why I feel that way. It can't just be that it's that, that you know, the glomerular nephrons of the kidney are just too complicated and it's pissing me off. <laughs> because um, Chinese medicine can be quite complex too. And then I realized over time that it's because there's a fun fundamental uh, philosophical underpinning to those two approaches to life that are quite different. The earliest, the beginning of Chinese medicine came from these emperors or aristocrats or different people in China trying to figure out how to live forever, how to have greater virility and strength or power in the bedroom or, uh, or wisdom or insight or knowledge. And the basis out of which all the practices came, 
Tai Chi, Qigong, meditation, herbs, different foods. They were attempting to they were attempting to find a way to optimize health. So it was really a study of health. And with, with Western medicine, it's really a study of both the functioning of the body, but also of disease. And so in all my Western medicine classes, it was, the emphasis was on um, pathology of the body and how to treat the disease. But it wasn't on, it wasn't on how to optimize health. So we have some doctors in the room and some physicians, and they, that's an ongoing dialogue that'd be an interesting one to talk about. But I ultimately came across a guy named Sun Si Miao. Like, you know you're a real geek when your hero is, uh, you know, somebody who lived in the 600, or the 800s, and was an old Chinese guy who broke the mold by living to 104 at a time when people died at like, you know, 30 years old. Um, but he developed a philosophy that he calls Yang Sheng, which means nourishing life. And his belief and his ideas were about how do you really nourish health? How do you, how do you optimize health? How do you find out what would be customized and optimized for an individual to be really robust and healthy and to extend their years, extend their life? Um, and so those ideas are kind of the basis of Chinese medicine. So I'm hesitant to go too deep into Chinese medicine right now because I think I'll start to lose people except for those who are really excited about it. Um, but the basic idea is that we have this concept of yin and yang, which everybody here, you know, we have the sun and the moon and male and female and day and night and on and on and on. And that they're in a constantly cycling um, process of transformation and change. That movement is constant. And life is movement. It's constantly in a state of, of change. And that it works in cycles. You know, we observe what we call the five seasons in Chinese medicine, uh, the cycles of life from early age to, you know, puberty to early adulthood, etc. Um, and the cycles throughout a day. And these ideas that different organs in the body are controlled by different elements. So, for example, the wood element corresponds to the liver and gallbladder, the fire element to the heart and small intestine, etc. And so Chinese medicine is based on balancing these five elements. And it's also about looking at what are called the eight principles. And I'll describe that really briefly because it's actually got a practical application that you can think about in terms of your life. So we look at when we look at a disease in a person, we look at is it internal and how deep in the body, or is it external out towards the surface? Uh, we look at cold and heat, which you could think of as like inflammation or as a, a lack of circulation. Is it a cold condition in the body, or is it something that's like an inflammatory, more heat condition? Um, we look at deficiency and excess. So we look at, is there a deficiency of an organ or an organ system, or is there something excessive happening? You know, a, a simplified example would be like hypothyroidism versus hyperthyroid. And then based on those, we determine if a condition is a yin condition or a yang condition. So we look at that, and then we look at conditions uh, like atmospheric, like wind, dryness, uh, fire, uh, cold, heat, dampness which is like phlegm in the body. 
and we look at this relationship between nature out there, the macrocosm, and, and nature inside, which is a microcosm, and we look to harmonize those so that a person's in balance. So a big part of that is living in balance with nature. It means eating foods that are truly seasonal, foods that are grown in the region where you are, uh, taking herbs to help support and b balance the body. Uh, in the summertime, we have more daylight. It's a very active, young, fiery time, so it's a time of far more activity. Whereas in the middle of the winter, it's a time for sleep and introspection and quietude. And so it's also living in accordance with these cycles of nature. And that by doing that over time, you, you become harmonized between the microcosm and the macrocosm, and that constitutes uh, real health, real true health. That also means that you're living uh, in accordance with what I'd say are natural laws. And we at this point in history are so far profoundly so far away from living in those natural laws because we have artificial light. We, we're very young in the West, so it's like more, work more, longer, all the time, nonstop. Uh, it's a very fiery, young culture. And in a lot of ways, it's out of balance. And if you look at what's going on in the world right now, um, and a lot of the dysfunction of the world, I think it's because of this, these imbalances on a collective level. So where I'd like to end and then open it up to some questions is um, I'm working on a book which are, are, it's based on what I call the 12 vitalities or the tw 12 healths. And they're aspects of what I think it means to really live in health in a healthy way. But you can strip it down to five. So I'll leave you with five for today. Um, the first is sleep. The second, diet. The third, movement the fourth meditation, and the fifth T. So I'm just going to say a little bit about each of those. Um, uh, there's actually a great book on sleep by Ariana Huffington that was just published recently. It's fantastic. Um, my basic idea towards sleep is that different people have different needs and that we should sleep in accordance with the season. Uh, in the summer, you can stay up later and rise earlier. In the winter, I think it's really important to actually get uh, more sleep. If you go back and you look at a lot of the older Chinese, the, the writers in Chinese medicine, their ideal is to go to sleep with the sun and wake up with the sun. I think the likelihood of most of us in here going to bed at 6 p.m. in the middle of winter is probably not very high. Um, but I do know that there have been times in my life where I really try to live closer to that and you feel absolutely extraordinary. Um, like we were saying the other night when we were adjusting to jet lag and we got like 12, 13 hours of sleep one night, you just feel like a superhuman the next day. You know, you feel like you could probably fly if you focused on it or something. So I think sleep is so fundamental. In people who are having a lot of insomnia, it's indicative of something going on, either psycho-emotional or, or physiological in the body. Chinese medicine, both through needles and herbs, can be incredibly effective with uh, insomnia. And then there are occasionally anomalies where there's something else going on, like sleep apnea or, or, or what have you. Um, the other thing I want to say about sleep is it's incredibly important to be in a really calm space as you fall asleep, a really calm and positive and peaceful state. Oftentimes we're like flipping through Instagram and then we're like, okay, time to go to bed. 
And so you're bringing in like way more stimulation than anybody in human history has ever <laughs> taken in. And all of those are impressions. All those impressions are going in, you know, our subconscious takes in 40 million bits of information a second, whereas the conscious mind only takes in like 10 or 12 or something like that. So you're taking all this information, like stuffing it into the subconscious and then going to sleep. And that's affecting your dream state. And who knows what other, in other ways it's affecting you. So there's also the Tao, the Taoists have explored dreaming a lot and, and lucid dreaming. I've met some people who say that there's no difference between when they go to bed at night and when they're awake in the morning. In other words, they have 24 hours and they say at night because they're not um, bound to the physical body, they're doing Tai Chi up in the clouds and who knows what, what other practices. Um, and all of the people I've talked to about those kind of practices say there's something fundamental. Tibetan Buddhism, they have a practice called uh, Dogen or Jogen, which is same thing, dream, it's dream practice, they say. All of them agree on one thing, which is that you have to get yourself into an incredibly deep meditative state before you fall asleep. Consciously. So not accidentally, I'm really tired and I fall asleep, but to do some form of meditation to quiet the mind before you go to bed. And to set the intention, I want to wake up tonight. Or I, I want to um, remember my dreams. One way to do that also is when you wake up, immediately write down your dreams and over time it will start to create an effect that you remember them more easily. Uh, we're not going to go into dream psychoanalysis right now, but um, there's a lot to be said, said there too. So that's it on sleep. There's a lot you can say about it, but I'd recommend that book uh, by Ar Ariana Huffington. Okay. Okay. So there you go. Just listen to Rich's podcast if you haven't already. Um, so the second one is diet. Um, again, this, diet is something that I think is, for those of you who saw that uh, Z, Z Dogtown, Dr. Doggy Dog Z, what's his name? Z Dog? Z Dog's criticism of what the health. Uh, the only thing about it that was valid in my opinion or worth taking is that uh, diet can and should be customized. Every person has different um, constitutional makeup and different needs. And uh, I mean, I eat a, a vegan, plant-based, whole foods, organic diet. I make most of my own food. So obviously I'm a believer that you can have a very healthy vegan diet. Uh, but I do think that people sometimes have to customize. I think sometimes they need to supplement with Chinese herbs. Um, and or to take sometimes some supplementation like B12 and iron and things and getting enough uh, fats. I'm not going to say too much about that because it's opening a big can of worms. But what I would say is to focus on organic and to eat seasonally. The earth produces the food that we need in the region we are to keep us in balance with nature and that environment and that climate. There's a reason that root vegetables grow in the win middle of the wintertime, right? Or that apples grow in the fall or they're, they're ripe. Nature is very intelligent and communicative. And, uh, you know, just because we can't eat mangoes in the middle of winter from Brazil or wherever doesn't mean we should live in a diet of mangoes. Um, I'm going to leave that at that for the moment. I would like to say one thing, though, which is, I read this study recently of, of all of these, um, 
these different examples of people living in a place for a period of time and having some ailment, some physical ailment, and the medicinal herb or plant they needed to address that ailment starts growing mysteriously on the land near where they are. Um, you know, and countless examples of this. So again, we're, we're interacting with and communicating with nature sometimes, even when we don't realize it. And I would suggest we should do it quite a bit more. Um, there is a, there are different Taoist practices of sitting with a tree. And I know people with cancer who have done this, uh, and healed themselves. They establish a relationship with a healthy tree and they enter into a cyclical breathing process and the tree will take on the uh, cancer, sometimes grow a tumor itself and, and take it from the person and then heal it uh, itself. Again, I'm not suggesting that if you, if you develop cancer, you should only just go talk to trees, but there are people who have done that and healed themselves. So the point is that we're in communication with nature and that we are nature and, um, and diet is such a fundamental aspect of that. Um, movement, kind of the same thing. It, it's, I think what's important is that every day that we move, we eat well, we sleep well. And with movement, um, it depends on how old you are. It depends on your constitution. I would suggest somebody who's incredibly fiery and very young do some movements that are more like Tai Chi and Qigong to balance out that energy. Um, or if somebody's really sluggish and slow and maybe um, carrying extra weight, that they do, they do exercises that are, what I say, more yang or fiery um, to help to balance out the elements. Everything in Chinese medicine is about balancing of these, these energies in the body. Um, movements that are wedded to mindfulness, I think, are a profound learning tool. So things like yoga, to actually observe yourself while you're in movement. Uh, I know for a lot of you who run, you probably have experiences of hitting a place where the mind drops out and you're profoundly aware of your body and your breathing and the environment you're in and you kind of go into the zone, right? Um, the ideal would be to have some exercise where regularly you're going into that state of, of being in a zone or, or that's the same thing as being in a mindful state. Uh, the fourth is meditation. And I mean, there's so many different endless types of meditation that it's, I think, probably overwhelming for people just trying to step into the, the world of meditation. Um, fundamentally, for me, meditation is about taking things off. There's a saying, a man of the Tao takes something off every day. A man of the world puts something on every day. So uh, I say with meditation, the simpler, the more accessible, the more... Um, it lends itself to observing yourself and or being in total stillness and letting the mind go and allowing things to come up naturally. For me, that's a better meditation. I think I've probably tried just about every form of meditation out there and I've settled on a, a practice of Zen meditation, which is about maintaining a state of emptiness internally uh, or Vipassana. If any of you can ever find 10 days and go sit a Vipassana course, you will have a very profound meditation practice for the rest of your life. And you'll probably be a completely different person by the time you walk out of a 10-day sit. Um, it's non-sectarian. I mean, it's technically Buddhist, but you sit with a Jewish guy and a Hindu guy and a Jainist guy. And it's not really a religious thing, but it's a very, very potent form of meditation. 
and supposedly is the original form of meditation taught by the Buddha. And there's a lot to say about that. If you have questions, we'll talk some other time. Um, and I would suggest meditation every day. I say it's, it's a bit like diet, you know, just because somebody can't eat a perfect vegan diet or something isn't a reason to say, so I just eat T-bones and New York strips instead every day. Doing something is way better than doing nothing. So even if it's sitting for five minutes and starting your day from a place of clarity and stillness, even if that's five minutes, if you can't meditate, then have a cup of tea and be, be attentive to the experience you're having. That can have a profound impact over time. It's a compound uh, impact, I think. And then the fifth is, is tea. People say, well, tea, how can that be a, one of the fundamentals of health? Um, I would say that it doesn't have to be tea. I think it's anything, to me, health is anything that puts you in harmony with life itself. And in order to be, you know, there's a saying that the only difference between a master and the rest of us is a master has no future or past. So we could talk about that for a while, but what it means is that the master is one with life and life can exist for you anywhere other than right now, right here. And so a practice of, of tea is a practice of mindfulness. It also means for those of us who are living in the middle of a, a busy city that you're actually connecting with nature in a, in a direct way. You're literally drinking trees. Doing that and using it as a practice to be aware of the movements of your body, the state of your mind and emotions, to be still and to be attentive to the experience you're having. Not to mention the, the, what we call the chi of the tea or its, its ability to, to lift you up or to adaptogenically change your state of being, but also to free to be calm and still is a very profound practice. I say tea for me in terms of some sort of ritual observance because I haven't found a better practice for cultivating mindfulness aside from meditation. For me, it's a direct way to connect to nature every day, every morning. Um, the other, I can mention the other, the other, what I call healths, um, but I don't want to go into too much detail about them. So if you want to know, you can ask me, but, but I think when I find myself in life, and this will be kind of my final word, when I find myself out of balance, lacking clarity, not knowing what direction to go, feeling really indecisive about what I'm doing, um, having any kind of health issues, I go back to these five practices and I say, am I doing that? Am I, is there a deficiency of them? And if I'm not practicing them every day, then I go, oh, okay. And I always find out, oh, it's because I've started leaving this one out. Maybe it's movement. And maybe what I'm feeling is sluggish in my body or tired or I'm not thinking clearly. And I go, well, I haven't been moving for a week or two weeks or whatever. Or I seem to be able to always track how I'm feeling back to, am I observing these things or not? When I'm doing them, especially for a couple months every day, I get into a, a rhythm, an inner rhythm, where I just start kicking an incredible amount of ass. And that's how I would like to be living my life. It's also that I, I feel very centered and grounded and present to the people and present to the experiences I'm having. And from that place, I think you can live a very fulfilled life. I also think when you're balanced like that, your purpose begins to naturally rise up and make itself very apparent. I don't think finding your purpose is making lists of to do of, of pros and cons and things that you think you should or shouldn't do and thinking intensely about it. Like one of my teachers said, your purpose, uh, or what we call your jing in Chinese medicine and Taoist medicine, jing is your contract with heaven. 
So they really say you're born with a genetic thing that's dropped into your kidneys that carries your genetic lineage and it's connected to Tien or, or heaven and that it's an actual contract and it's what you're here to do. You have a purpose and a mission and your life should be organized around it. And if you are living truly in alignment with your purpose, that in and of itself is a form of health. So I don't think that comes from thinking. I think it comes from being a very, in a very balanced state of being. And I'd suggest that you can come much closer to that if you're observing some basic aspects of health, like these, the five, five vitalities. Now, if you follow all 12 of them, I don't even know what's possible. Probably a lot of things. Uh, I've got a strong outline and I've written some chapters of it. It's all, it's all in there. I just need to get it onto the paper. So, uh, so it'll get there. And there's some exciting topics like sex and addiction and relationships and, um, and create creativity, creative expression and things like that. So, um, the last thing I'm going to say, this is not a, this is not a business plug, but it is to say that there's, uh, I, I have a tea company called living tea and, and we get old growth teas. Uh, I go to China and Taiwan and Malaysia and we source these teas from trees, some of which are a thousand year old trees and, um, they're grown in their native environments with no pesticides, herbicides, fertilizers, weed killers. They're very, they're medicinal herbs. They're not like any tea you've ever, um, drank in a, in a bag or something. And I would suggest if you decide to explore tea as one of your aspects of health, at the very least, make sure it's organic. Uh, a lot of the organic teas are still coming from little eco plantations where they clear cut the mountain and only grow these little bushes. They die, the, the bushes die after 15, 20 years. Uh, whereas tea trees, the oldest one on record is 3,400 years old. It's still alive. So that gives you an idea of, you know, I think it's the same thing. Human beings, I believe if they're really living in actual health are meant to live 120 years old. I really believe that. And there are areas in the world where people are living a much more natural way lifestyle and the centenarian populations there are much higher. So I think we should be in robust health and still moving around at a hundred. That's not the norm. Um, so maybe that's what happens if you follow the 12 healths, you live a, a healthy life to 120 years old. I don't know. Uh, but that'd be a nice, a nice thing to happen. Um, this is actually the last thing I'm going to say, and this is just a really practical thing. Um, <clears throat> I think a lot of us live in a state of tension and I think at the root of that tension is this relationship to death. That's not very healthy. Um, and I was talking at the beginning about what, what I feel death really is all about. And in one tradition that I've studied, the idea is to consume tension like it's a food. So when there's difficult moments, you know, I've talked to a number of people here who say they're having difficulty in uncomfortable situations or they have difficulty uh, expressing themselves if they think they're going to let somebody down or disappoint somebody or they feel a little bit stuck. And I'd like to suggest that all of that tension is just energy. You know, tension is friction. And what happens when you spark, when you, when you rub two things together, it creates heat. And that heat can turn into a fire and that fire can be a transformative fire. And I would say that 
that friction is just another form of chi. Everything in nature is made up of chi, whether it's the trees or the grass or the clouds or you. Um, and that that tension can be consumed actively. And that what that means is when you feel uh, contracted, that you find the point of contraction, you find the place where you feel tense, and you actually breathe that through your system and actually consume it as if it's a form of food. And here's my, my esoteric statement of the day, which is that I'd like to suggest that the body, uh, I mean the flesh body and the skeleton, is just draped over the chakras. And that the chakras actually are like muscles. If you ask Arnold Schwarzenegger, I don't know if you guys have ever watched like the YouTube video of him, the pomp. I'm going to pomp you up. You know, it's this video of him lifting and talking about his experience of lifting weights. You know, when you look at that guy and he's looking at his bicep and he definitely feels his bicep when he flexes it. Uh, the chakra system is, uh, they're like muscles, but they're psychic muscles. In order for them to be strong enough, they have to be used in the same way you would do bench presses. To I can't believe I'm making this analogy, but um, the idea of breathing tension through the through the body and is a way of strengthening the chakras. And so, uh, I invite you to not back away from confrontation, to not back away from fear of disappointment, to not back away from uh, difficult moments with people or situations but to face them head on and to, to breathe into them, to enter into a relationship with them. Because by doing that, I think we really build, I know Julie's been talking about the core. That's really what it is to, to build the core. And that's also the cultivation of that gut feeling or intuition. And by doing that, I think it's, it's it helps develop a steering, uh, a navigation system for showing us kind of what direction to go in life. So, um, just a couple thoughts. Again, mostly my opinion. So if any of it resonates with you, great. If not, then, uh, then you could throw it out. Then breathe into it. Um, so thank you. Yeah, beautiful. Um, you are wise beyond your years, my friend. <laughs> thank I really you. appreciate the wisdom. Uh, that was quite a gift. Uh, and before we open it up to questions, two, two things. I would highly suggest that everybody explore this relationship with tea that Colin sort of only began to touch on. Uh, and you really should check out all of his teas at livingtea.net. You can get a subscription. Are you, do you have a subscription thing set up yet? Or you, uh, we talked about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a pop-up screen will come if you uh, go to the website. Right. And, uh, and support this guy and the amazing products that he's putting out into the world. Um, the second thing is I thought, you know, I'd like to kind of launch into the next phase of this discussion by bringing up a topic that I think we can probably all relate to um, on some level. And, you know, you talked about it in a macro sense, but this idea that we're, we're just chronically, you know, out of balance with the gestalt of the way that we live our lives. You know, we don't sleep enough. We're overly stressed out at work. Um, you know, we're in this state of chronic fatigue uh, that leads to anxiety and depression and then, you know, pharmaceutical dependence uh, and, and it cascades down from there. And I think there are a lot of people in the world, it is, it is almost like the epidemic of our age, like people are sort of stuck in this, um, in this system and 
don't even know the first step to begin to emerge out of it, right? So you 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 explain these you know sort of core, you know core principles of health, each and every one of them you know integral to uh, you know clawing your way out and and achieving some you know approximating a greater sense of balance in your life that can lead to improved health. But if someone is feeling really trapped and 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 confused and and it's just these are brand new ideas to that person. Like, what is the first thing that they can do, or is there, you know, a practice that can ignite that spark that would be more important than any other that that one could focus on? I mean, I would probably like smoke a cigarette to calm down first, you know, because <laughs> <laughs> because you don't want to be too healthy after after all, because you're gonna die, right? No, um, I'm obviously being sarcastic. Um, uh, well, organic tobacco. Yeah. Um, again, I, I would suggest. Um, I, I think everybody in this room knows. Just I, I have this debate with friends of mine who are doctors, and they they relate to food as you know bioavailable fuel packets. I got to get my carbs, my protein, and my fats in every day, and they don't even really. They're like the guys in Silicon Valley, the who, Soylent guys. Yeah, who are just like, just drink this milkshake twice a day, and you're cool, you know. And it's like, you're cutting yourself off from such a fundamental relationship to to nature, and also to other people. Like, for example, I don't know that it's about finding some practice. I think it's about doing the things we're already doing in in a, in a better way. And it's not in a new way. It's actually, in a lot of ways, going backwards a little bit. Um, I don't know how many of you, before you eat, take a moment to acknowledge the labor and sacrifice that went into that food internally, to acknowledge the um, that that's the most important medicine you're going to take that day, to allow your body and mind to be in a calm state of being when you take in this nourishment. Uh, or to realize that it is nourishment and also that it's a moment to really stop and connect with the people you're with if you're with other people. You know, most most often we get the food, we scarf it down because there's the body, the body's hungry, stick in the face, moving on, next thing. Um, you know, like whatever, whatever happened to, even if it's non-spiritual or religious, whatever happened to a moment of prayer or stillness before we sit down to a meal, now it's almost seen as weird. You know, if I stop at a meal and put my hands together or just sit quietly and, and take in the experience I'm about to have, people look at you like, you're a little, this guy's a little weird, you know, <laughs> he's a little off to the side, I don't know. And it's like, when did that become the norm? When what I see as being so perfectly natural is, for most people, seen as kind of, kind of yeah, he's doing that California stuff again. Oh. Um, so I think it's really, a lot of it's about doing the things that we're already doing, but doing it with more mindfulness and more reverence. And, you know, something I've observed and that I, I've talked a lot to one of my teachers who's a team master about, we don't have an issue of a lack of mindfulness. It's not so much that we're lacking uh, mindfulness, we're lacking reverence. And the example that I use is if I sit down with some of you for a tea session and we're drinking out of Ikea cups and Ikea pot and we're talking about Donald Trump, that's not an, that's not an experience that requires a great deal of mindfulness. 
If we sit down and I tell you this is a 500-year-old tea bowl that was the emperor's bowl from Shanghai or somewhere, and this teapot is 300 years old and it came from so-and-so, now when you pick up that 500-year-old tea bowl, unless you're a little, you know, <laughs> um, you're going to be extremely mindful of what you're doing. So I think the mindfulness issue first goes back to reverence. Uh, and taking that same level of reverence, that same level of respect for every aspect of our lives and to try to live from that place. Um, because there's something really remarkable and miraculous about everything and everybody and the entire experience we're having. It's just that if we're chronically in our heads and addicted to thoughts, we're not recognizing this extraordinary miracle of life that's going on every moment of every day that we're alive. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so many people, I think, get to the end of their lives and then they go, well, shit, that's it. You know, and if they had really been there for their whole experience and been awake to this, this miraculous um, happening, then they'd get to the end and go, that was a life well lived. All right, let's, uh, let's open it up to some questions. Andrew. Other than Mike Rich. Um, Colin, that's fantastic. I really enjoyed listening to that. I just wanted to talk about a bit, you, you mentioned there towards the beginning, at the beginning and the end, about death. Uh, I'm, I'm a doctor. I practice in intensive care. I see a lot of death. And mm -hmm. I, you know, I was interested, Rich said the other day he's never seen a dead body. I hate to say how many I've seen. Most of, most of them, because they have such burden of disease, as we see it in Western health, that they can no longer live. And we try and do our best to, to make it a comfortable death. As I'm learning more about the Eastern traditions and the fundamentals of health that you mentioned, I'm starting to recognise, you know, appropriately that, you know, uh, I, I should worry less about disease and think about just giving health to people. And therefore, how, in the perfect state, you mentioned before that a person might live for 120 years. Why can't we live forever? You know, I don't want to live forever, but you know, why, why doesn't the human body we're born into, why cannot live it live for much longer than we currently live? And why did you say 120, for example? Hmm. Telomeres, obviously. Because <laughs> um, our stem cells research has not been funded adequately. No. <laughs> Um, you know, I, I went to this conference last year that was uh, a private conference put on by the founders of the TED Talks, and there were a number of uh, doctors there who are really working in, you know, private labs in Palo Alto and working with, you know, um, limitless budgets and doing research into longevity and technology, the, the biotechnological intersection and, you know, nanotechnology and all this stuff. And they're kind of trying to solve these uh, questions. I mean, this is a little bit like, you know, you're asking a Taoist a question about science. And so um, my answer is that it's unnatural. And I derive all the guiding principles of my life by observation of nature. And I think, I think we naturally could live to 120 years old if we were really living in harmony with nature, but not through an artificial means. And so to me, it's, again, it's just natural. You know, it's, it's different animals have different lifespans. Um, 
there's also a concept in Taoism of the hus what's called the Husien, H-S-I-E-N, which are uh, people who, through spiritual practice, cultivate, uh, I mean, this is going to start sounding a little crazy, but it's called the holy fetus. And so it's called nadon or inner alchemy. And they cultivate a uh, what in the West we call an astral body that is independent of physical of the physical body and it lives on uh, beyond the physical body and they they're they're called immortalists right so they're suggesting that um, they can live forever and also that through reincarnation that people eventually arrive at a place where they commit themselves to those practices and achieve this state but again, it's through these sort of natural means, you know, through different types of meditation and breath work and Tai Chi and different practices. It's not through the, um, it's not through using, you know, scientific means or injections or things. So, so I guess I just sort of like contradicted myself probably a couple different times in different ways. But I think there's a natural means of achieving extraordinary longevity. And then I think there's what we're trying to do with science. And uh, I'd stick with the natural. Yeah, I think it's probably got better uh, consequences. Because part of, and I'll just say one thing, I think that um, for a person to cultivate that sort of extraordinary longevity naturally requires also the ennoblement of their character. So it's, it's a cultivation of virtue. It's a cultivation of uh, the inner principles of nature by observing nature. And it's in accordance with the natural universe. Whereas the scientific means you could have just some dude who's a billionaire because he made a new Google app and, uh, and now he's got this. And what's he going to do with the time? What would a person do with that kind of uh, power? You know, And it, I think it's kind of scary what most people on the planet today would do with that power without the ennoblement of their character. So I think nature would find a way to prevent that from happening, in fact. So... You know, growing second heads and things. Other than the five hells, did you mention it or did I miss it? <laughs> uh, I kind of like flirted with mentioning it. Um, here's what I'll say about that. If so, if you go to the blog for Living Tea, uh -huh. um, there's I've written some long essays on there. Uh, one of them is specifically on veganism uh, in terms of its spiritual the spiritual aspects of it, of it. it it touches on ethics and other things but uh, it's a perspective that I think a lot of people haven't um, maybe thought about too much I don't know but I'll be publishing an abrit it will it will be the 12 healths with maybe a couple paragraphs on each uh, in the next couple weeks so I'd rather than just list them off Right now, I think it'd be better to have some context for why I consider that I give primacy to those 12. Do you have water? What's that? Do you have water in it? Water. What do you mean? I don't know. Is, that, is, is water one of the... Yeah. Oh, uh, that's in diet. It's part of what I talk about in diet. Yeah. Um, so, it's there. Um, so there's this theme that I've kind of been working through for some time in my professional life, and it is, particularly for a female in a corporate environment, is the suppression of your emotions. 
You're not supposed to show emotion. You're not supposed to cry or get angry or you have to stay very neutral. Mm-hmm. And um, I've often debated, do I disengage from the environment or do I try to engage and foster a change in that environment? And both seem to be detrimental one way or the other. Um, (laughs) So um, I guess maybe my question is, do you have some suggestions on how to support myself in, I mean, I've chosen to try and foster more emotional environment or a more authentic environment, Um, but it does sort of deplete me in a way. So what are some tools or practices that can help support me in that? Mm-hmm. Um, that's a great question. Um, I'm in a relationship with a Venezuelan woman, woman, so if I thought that the expression of fiery and strong emotions was a bad thing, I'd probably be in the wrong relationship. Um, but I, I think it's incredibly healthy and important and necessary. Uh, actually one of the healths is about creative expression and creative expression isn't just you know painting a tree or something it's also um, the our voice you know I'm about to quote the Bible the word was made or uh, the word was made flesh right this power of the word um, is to me the seat of our authenticity and power I think where we are, our word is what uh, anchors us to the earth. And I think that the word is incredibly powerful and it's very important to be mindful of the way we use our words. That said, you know, earlier I was talking about how the emotions are like, another analogy for the emotions is that I read from a great teacher I like a lot. Um, He said, it's like an animal menagerie where somebody went around in the middle of the night and opened all the cages and then just left. (laughs) And like, you know, so the flamingos are like squawking somewhere and the gorillas are attacking some animals and like, it's just, and somebody's hungry, the crocodiles want to eat and now, and it's just like kind of mayhem in there. And so there's no groundskeeper to maintain order, so to speak. And so the emotions are very reactive and there's not much space between something that happens and our emotional reaction to it. The communication and expression of those emotions, I don't know how helpful they are in situations. Uh, So I'd suggest first that space is really creating some space through meditation and practices so that there's some space between you and the emotion. Um, The second thing I would say is sometimes I tell people internalize everything, externalize nothing. So what I mean by that is an externalized lesson of, you know, Trapper's being a real inconsiderate asshole right now, and I'm so sick of his blah, 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 and then all the mental chatter about it, you know, da, 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 da. That is not, where is the lesson in there? Okay, so the lesson I get out of is, sometimes Trapper's a dick, great, you know? <laughs> um, that, what, what can be done with that information? Nothing. If I can see that that's happening, um, or that I'm having those thoughts, and I can internalize it instead of externalize it, I can internalize it and say, when am I an inconsiderate uh, person? Am I being inconsiderate in this situation? I think the internalization of our external experience and recognizing that actually there's no separation between the self and other at all is a very profound tool for growth. It's also why relationships, like an immediate 
uh, relationship is a more profound tool for growth than any, you know, 10-day Vipassana sit or anything. If two people can be engaged in a relationship where they recognize they're just mirroring each other constantly. And that if they can learn to internalize all the things that they think are about the other person, they can grow profoundly. And I know you guys have talked quite a bit about that, I think, on, on different podcasts. But so I would try to create enough space to first try and internalize the situation. And if you can, take a little bit of space and then communicate it in a way that's non-emotional. Because you can, you can communicate strong emotions in a way that don't uh, trigger everybody else's emotions. And sometimes you just got to... But I would say, actually, if you need to speak up and you're stifling it, then let it out. Because it's healthier to let it out and run the potential risk of what could or could not happen than it is to stifle and repress what you're feeling. You know, um, you know, something I say to people is how would you live your life if you knew you couldn't fail? The worst possible thing is you get fired. Maybe that's actually the best possible thing. And if you're in an environment where you're having to live in a way that's disingenuine and inauthentic and you're constantly stifling yourself, then maybe that's not the right place for you. You know, and maybe you need to be in a place where people can actually uh, honor and and hold space for you in a way that's meaningful. So. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I want to echo that conversation because I was trying to think through and just personally the five tenants you've talked about and and adding more and and doing more meaningful things. Um, but reality is, is we go and we go to work for eight hours a day and um, trying to maintain a balanced pre present mindset is um, really hard in, in my head. I don't, I don't know if there's always that tension um, that's trying to create imbalance or it's there to create balance. Um, but trying to to emulate that in, in work um, specifically, um, I would I would love to get some advice for just somebody who's young and you know, there's this idea that we have to try and prove ourselves, we have to move up, and if you don't, there's a whole line of expectations that come with that. Um, so I'd just be curious to get your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, it's, if you, it's tough, kind of hard in this world to sort of do this work in a world that doesn't acknowledge its importance or significance, when, in, when I feel like it's, in a lot of ways, the most important thing that we could incorporate in life right now. Um, that's yesterday I talked about something I call alarm clocks I think if you're in a work environment all day that's very heady and it's all about critical thinking and getting things done and checking off a to-do list and everything manuf architect into it some way to have mindful moments within it um, because if that's the reality and you choose that reality and, and it is a choice you know you are um, you could you could do whatever you want ultimately within reason, right? But if you're choosing to live in that reality and you also want to attend to your interior life and to also work on your own growth, um, you have to find a way to architect into it mindfulness. And so that might mean, you know, setting an alarm clock that goes off a couple times a day where you stop and, and drink a cup of tea mindfully or go for a walk in a park outside and really feel your feet in the grass and connect to, to what's larger than you. 
Because again, I think people go through life and they work for 50 years or 40 years or whatever, and every day it's a grind. It becomes very habitual, mechanical. You do the same thing. You make your money. You, you check off the boxes of what you have to do in life. And then you get to the end and go, well, shit, that's it. I mean, you know, what uh, Thoreau called, said the majority of men die in quiet desperation. So build in, build in the, the mindfulness practices. And it might also take some discipline. Discipline's only difficult until it becomes a habit. So if it means you got to get up in the morning and go for, get some exercise and do a meditation practice, and it means you got to go to bed an hour earlier or whatever, for me personally, I think it's absolutely worth, uh, worth the discipline because you live a, more, a fuller life, you know? Um, the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. What is considered resignation is confirmed desperation. It's profound, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, uh, and, and perhaps truer now than uh, during his age. Um, just wanted to go back to something that you said at the start. Uh, you were talking about life acting through us. Um, and I recently <clears throat> put myself forward to, to, to talk at a particular seminar, it was on pensions, about um, health and what we can do to improve our longevity. And I, I talked a lot about um, plant-based diets. And the reason I did that is not because I enjoy standing up talking to people. I, I don't, but I felt pushed to do it. I felt it was life acting through me and I just uh, kept things just appearing in my brain about what I should be talking about. So it was life acting through me. But I also think that, so I was talking about vegan stuff quite a lot, there's also paleo people where they're being pushed to talk about paleo. Now is, is that life um, trying to say that different people should have different diets? Or is it just life messing with us? <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a good question. I, mean, um, I wouldn't worry too much about that. And what I mean by that, you know, it's like once the Buddha was asked, uh, are you a man or a god? And he responded, I'm awake. So it's just kind of wrong question. I'm not saying that's a bad question. All questions are good questions. What I am saying is do your thing. You do you. And do it to the best of your ability, and set an example by by your own vitality and your own the way you feel, and um, embrace it, and don't shy away from sharing who you are with the world, and allow the people with whom that resonates to to resonate. And if it doesn't, then that's their own trip. You know, I mean, we spend too much of our lives worried about what other people think, and I don't think you can live a genuine, authentic life if you give a shit what people think. So. I mean, it's not saying walk around saying I don't, <laughs> you know, I don't care what anybody thinks, but don't live your life from that place, right? I mean, thank yeah. you. Can I go again? Sure. Oh, I won't come back to Western Health again, uh, which obviously because I work there, but but also because the people in this room see doctors that that you know practice Western Health. I hope as well as seeing people who practice Eastern health principles as well, philosophies. Um, I'm starting to, you know, become to a dilemma in my career where I, I see all the, the, the good that you can do in Western medicine, but also a lot of the bad because basically all we do is give a pill or a procedure for 
for everything and we have to put a label on the diagnosis every time when in fact many of the things your fundamentals which I like to now preach as well are the most important things you can do I think sleep may be the most powerful drug in inverted commas on the planet maybe even more powerful than meditation uh, I mean uh, we can debate that one but so, so when I'm practicing, how do I convince the patient who's who's wants to see me for a pill or a procedure that I can give one of the more natural fundamentals of health? And also, how can the people in this room who come to a doctor wanting to try and get the more natural remedies rather than the pills or the procedure, how do we all interact in a modern society where we're, we're getting worse as we, we get more tools and more x-rays and more uh, operations and things that we can do? How, how, any guidance in that dilemma? Yeah, this, I mean, this question seems to come up a lot. It, and actually, I talked about it in, um, at the end of the Italy retreat. Uh, in that, I think that podcast was um, Rich published that as a podcast, and I think I go into some depth about that question. But my brother's a Western doctor, and he did, he studied Chinese medicine for a year and a half, so we have a shared lexicon. Um, and you know, he's just he just finished his residency, so he's at the same place that is starting to really see and question: Am I helping these people? You know, like I'm just prescribing drugs or, or cutting people open, and that's, uh, and then they're going to come back in six months and nothing's changed. I mean, I would say in your case, so either share like you're doing through events or podcasts and things, or open an integrative practice. You know, what I mean, um, Buckminster Fuller, who I think is an unbelievable thinker, one of the most extraordinary thinkers we've had in the last hundred years, uh, he's got a great quote where he says. Um, you do not defeat the exist, existing system by fighting against it. Or you don't subvert. You don't subvert the existing, existing system by fighting against it. Create a better model that makes the old one obsolete. Something like that. Um, so I think instead of railing against the healthcare system and the insurance situation, and da, 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 you work to create new models and to share information. Uh, in a way that's more inspiration is far more powerful than incitation so you know incitation can get people fired up for a little bit but inspiration can change a person's whole life I think so I'd say just keep on with what you're doing <laughs> and, and what about the patients though, themselves how, uh, can, right. how can they get to right. you're like what about the question that I asked though? no no no, uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was very helpful. But I'm also wondering, you know, I see a lot of people where I say, when you go to the doctor, why don't you seek to find out that the answer is within yourself? Or that by getting more sleep and changing your diet, you might fix yourself. And they go, no, no, I want, I want an operation. Just tell them to start reading more Deepak Chopra. I think that's the, you know. No, I, um, that's a tricky one, right? I would suggest that, uh, Maybe you do your research into alternative modalities that you really feel are valid or that you uh, agree with or you can stand behind and find a practitioner because there are great alternative medical practitioners and a lot of mediocre ones. It's, I guess it's true of doctors as well, except that the baseline of becoming an MD, you have to pass through so much that you kind of know what you get at least at a baseline. That's not necessarily true because of the rigor of standardization with some of the alternative, you know, I mean, 
like we live in or I lived in LA for like eight years and like there are a lot of people who are like I was brushing my teeth one day and then I realized because the dolphins came to my third eye that actually actually I'm a crystal Reiki master from the ninth dimension so now I do healing treatments and I charge 400 bucks and, and it's fantastic and you may or may not experience anything you know it's like so you know a lot of people are out there who haven't gone through any really serious, uh, rigorous training in education. So I would find somebody who you you can stand by, or if you want somebody who has the credential of being an MD, who's also practicing uh, other modalities, because there are definitely people like that out there, um, and you work with them or integrate them or refer to them. Um, or you find a couple points that you think people can really digest and absorb that are accessible, you know? I mean, I think the, th the biggest thing is accessibility. A lot of people know that there's other ways of living, but they just don't even know where to begin. I mean, I think that's part of why probably Rich's podcast and Julie's podcast and other things have, have been so, uh, so well received is because of their accessibility, you know, partially, so. Also, uh, just a couple follow-up uh, thoughts, if I may, on that. In, you know, in, in response to Andrew's question, from from the patient perspective, uh, you know, a major theme of what's been discussed throughout the week is developing this connection with the self and and kind of cultivating that that intuition, right? And I think you know, baked into that is this sense of personal responsibility. And you know, we're in a culture where we look to the doctor as if the doctor is this godly creature that you know is holding the keys to the kingdom and has the answer to every conceivable question you would ever posit to that person. And I think we need to break that um, that mentality and and really shoulder more of that responsibility for our health upon ourselves to do our own inquiry and to of course seek out the advice and the protocols that medicine in all its forms have to offer but ultimately to you know basically not divest ourselves completely of that decision making process and i think that comes through education and what's available on the internet etc you know you can't like just like you and you can express that, you know, when you see patients yourself, and secondarily with respect to the doctor's perspective and how you can step into a more, um, you know, holistic uh, approach to treatment protocols. In the United States, you're seeing more and more of these functional medicine clinics, doctors in private practice, who are incorporating some of the methodologies that that Colin is expert in into a more Western practice so it's these hybrids you know where they have you know they're 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 prescribing herbs and they have acupuncture rooms in the actual clinics or, you know it's like and it's a struggle to get insurance to cover some of this like it's a it's in flux but you're seeing more and more of this and that makes me hopeful uh, and some of the doctors that I've had on the podcast doctor like Michelle McMacken dr. Robert Osfeld they've been able to create um, forms of these kinds of clinic or, or, or preventive practices within the um, rubric of the hospitals in which they work, like they've been able to petition the boards to get funding to create you know, pilot programs, et cetera. And a big part of that um, success equation for them has been you know, uh, the, the sort of outreach programs where the patients have to come back in and there are staff members who check in with them on their, on their diet protocols, et cetera, to create some accountability 
with respect to these sort of lifestyle alteration prescriptions that are being made. And then I've had doctors on who actually get out their prescription pad and write down like you should eat broccoli at dinner. Or, you know, like if the, something about writing it on the prescription pad, like making it official. And they'll have stacks of DVDs and books. And they'll say your, your prescription is to watch this movie or to read this book, you know, watch Forks Over Knives, watch, you know, What the Health, whatever it is. Um, and, and I think that is a really cool kind of interesting way of you know, approaching that. And then if the person watches it, when they come back, there can be a dialogue. And I know, you know, there's a, there's a very specific framework in which you work where you only have a certain amount of time and you've, you've got to like get onto the next patient. So I don't know what kind of flexibility you have um, to be able to do these sorts of things. But I think there's creative ways of, you know, kind of, um, uh, of putting your stamp uh, and, and, you know, infusing your practice with some of these ideas. doctor side of it may be easier because you are the authority behind to see you and expecting a result and if they get uh, an alternative view then you know they can question it or not but it's, it comes with an authoritarian uh, message the other side it's tough because you know there's a there's a groundswell of a movement to go alternative and to look at other naturopathic type remedies but there's a massive counterforce at least in the u.s you know when you sit in front of a TV, any amount of time, you're going to be told what you have and go see your doctor about it. Or, you know, one in three people are going to get this in their lifetime. Go see your doctor. And, you know, then they're funded to prescribe a medication or something. So it's, that's a tricky part. Mm -hmm. you know, and that's going to take time. It's just going to take time and movement. Yeah, there, there are major problems with the... Mm, with the medical system as it, it currently exists. I mean, I'd go so far as to say it's a broken system, but there's also a lot of very brilliant minds and very compassionate, uh, intelligent people working on that problem. There's also a lot of agencies who have a vested interest in not allowing that to happen. So, you know, we're in interesting times, my friend. Yeah. I had a question. Um, I live in Cincinnati. And you live way out in wherever, Colorado. If I wanted to find um, a person that practices Chinese medicine in Cincinnati, and I don't know anything about it, um, how do I, like, what what do I need to look for? And that, like, is there a certain place that they should have gone to school or a certain number of years that they practice? I mean, how am I going to know that they're a good practitioner versus a quacky practitioner? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, the good thing about Chinese medicine, one of the reasons that it's, uh, it's of all the alternative medicines, it's the one making the most headway in terms of mainstream society, Western society, is because um, it was so well standardized and exported um, under Mao Zedong, which there's a whole story there I'm not going to go into. We can talk about it later if you want. Okay. Um, but the testing is, is really rigorous. Um, and the standardization of care and the education. So you won't find many, you, you can't practice as a quack Chinese doctor. I mean, you would very quickly be sh shut down and likely put in jail or something. Um, so so there, is a, there is a standard there that's, that's good, you can trust. But there is a, also a big difference, and I'd say this is true of Western doctors as well, of somebody who's been practicing for a long time. 
uh, very actively versus somebody who's just starting out. And not, that's not to say that somebody just starting out might not be very good. Mm -hmm. um, I remember re listening to this podcast somewhere recently that was talking about the instances of uh, death by some cardiac failure or some sort of uh, you know heart-related issue went down when all of the senior or elder cardiologists and cardiac surgeons went on vacation. And they did this big study on it ac across the country. And they were trying to figure out, like, what is going on here? Like, you've got all the old veterans leaving town, and it seems that the quality of care is better. And I think that's, there are lots of different conjectures as to why that's the case. But one of them is that you get these young guys fresh out of school. They're putting a lot of pressure on themselves. They're, very, they're not mechanical, because they might not know the answers to everything. They know that. So they're very attentive. They really care a lot about what they're doing. And they're much more engaged. They're not doing things based on, this is how I've done it for 20 years, right? So you can have practitioners who are, are younger in their practice who are still very good. Um, I mean, I would say email me if you want, and I'll be happy to, to ask around and see if I can find a good practitioner. I will definitely do that. Is there no website or one place where you can go to find somebody you know who's in your area? There's not really. I mean, you can find one through NCCAOM. Um, which is the National uh, Accreditation Institute. Um, you could do, type in find a practitioner by city or state, but you won't be able to get any kind of reviews on them or anything. So, What is the accreditation she looks for? Uh, no, I mean, so that's another thing, right, is if you're trying to address a particular thing, then they're licensed practitioners, but then there are also people who've done an additional two-year specialty, mm -hmm. which are DOMs, so it's a Doctor of Oriental Medicine, DOM or OMD, um, and they'll they'll have an OMD area. the band. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's where they got the name. Um, if they have the title of of Doctor or OMD or DOM, it means that they've spent two years intensively researching a particular area. Um, in particular, if it's around, you know, like I know a guy in LA who's treating cancer, which he can't claim that because it's illegal, but he has people from all over the world flying into LA to, to see him. And he is, he was one of my f favorite teachers, uh, from, for six years. And he, I've never, I mean, this guy's mind is so crazy. He's absolutely brilliant. And he was a, he was an MD in Beijing came up against what he thought were the limitations of Western medicine, went back to school for Chinese medicine for a number of years. And uh, and he's almost exclusively treating cancer. That's really his focus, so. Yeah. Uh, because of the American Medical Association, primarily. You know, there's there's just certain there's a lot of things that we're limited in terms of what we can say we do, we can and cannot do, you know? Um, it's like on all the supplements, you know, you look, the FDA does not recognize that this thing does this, does anything, basically. And you're like, but what about all these instances of it doing this thing? And it's, you know, it's just kind of a bureaucracy, I suppose. I mean, do you have anything more to say on that? I mean, we can go down the rabbit hole on how, uh, you know, government lobbying groups uh, you know, influence policy and, 
what can and can't be said and the compromised FDA and EPA and all of that. I mean, I don't know how it works specifically with respect to, you know, what a Chinese medicine doctor mm -hmm. can, you know, advertise or, or market as doing or not doing. I mean, you would know more than that, more than me about well, that. Well, it's but. curious to me that it's specifically cancer. Cancer is the one thing we cannot claim anywhere in our website, anywhere in our literature. We can't say we can treat cancer. But I know Chinese docs who are using a lot of very strong herbs, in particular certain medicinal mushrooms, um, and diet, and getting amazing results. So I think, I think the main thing is they don't want people, if they are in stage three or stage four cancer, who really need close supervision and maybe um, might need chemotherapy or they're going to die. Or at least that's what that's what Western medicine might think about a condition that they just that they disregard that, or they say I'm not going to get any testing done, or I don't need you know any lab labs or radiological reports. So maybe it's precautionary. Maybe it's you know I could come up with a lot of conspiracy theories about other things. I mean, it's just curious why a lot of even Western doctors who are using alternative means in treating difficult conditions they come under such scrutiny that they have to move their practices to Mexico or Costa Rica or some private lab in Canada or something when they, when they start getting really great results. You go, well, okay, what's what's going on there, you know? So um, I'd say there are a lot of people making a lot of money off of disease. And that's all I'm gonna say on that for now, yeah. Yeah, it's usually the question is why this thing, it doesn't seem right, just follow the money. You know, that's usually where you go. So just a, I just want to follow up on something Andrew said, which I think is, is really profound. I have, I have a client who's, I don't say who they are, a large pharmaceutical company that happens to be in the health and wellness business as well. It's a very small part of their business. And um, I was talking to the, the guy who runs that, and he, uh, he was giving me an example, and I shared this with someone here. You know, if you if you if a diabetes patient came in and you had to amputate a limb because of their diabetes, and you told them that I can, you can prevent that through diet and exercise. That they would actually, that seven out of eight of them would choose not to do that. And I think that's sort of the example of the enormity of 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 the problem. And and I was thinking, Andrew, too, that people come into a to a doctor, you know, and they're they're a bundle of stuff. You know, not just a disease or just a something that could be even cured. That to kind of help them and to meet that those seven out of eight people, you you kind of have to open up a can of worms and say like, you know, and I, the system's not designed to do that, right? And so it's very very hard. I think the the ones that seem successful is that they seem to funnel people to where they can open up to say what's getting you know what is getting in your way of living your life the way you want want to live it. And, and then there's probably so many different paths that that can go down. And I, th I think that's the challenge, is that the system just doesn't seem to want to see who, who the whole person is and what they're trying to, to become. So um, we'll just have to keep finding different models. You know, it feels like that's really the moral of the story. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think the system is not set up to uh, manage the psychology of motivation, you know, just systemically. Like Andrew said, you have 15 minutes, right? This is what you get. People come in with an expectation of getting a prescription with a pill or, or a protocol that is going to resolve their problem. And I think it is 
true that if you tell people, well, the, the, the path through is to like, you're going to have to change your diet and the, you're going to, you only have to change one thing, everything. And it starts here and this is what you're going to have to do. Like most people would freak out or not do it, or maybe start it for a couple days and then wane off. Why is that? Like we need to address that. And I think there's a lot of brilliant, well-intentioned people in the medical profession who understand that. And yet at the same time, I still think it's an excuse, right? When a doctor says, well, I could tell them that they could do that, but they're not going to do it. So I just give them the pill. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's lazy. And I think that that is, um, that's not a, a valid reason to not explore that no matter how time constrained you are. Uh, and so we've got to find a way to at least, uh, you know, nudge the system forward to create the openings uh, so that we can begin to you know, treat people in that way, right? And it will come through these functional medicine clinics, but it also has to happen from the top down systemically. Mm -hmm. And I'm gonna say one quick thing and then we gotta round it up here. But um, there's a great TED talk by a woman who said, why are waiting rooms these repositories of uh, you know, dead static information and people just sit there forever? Why aren't they opportunities to understand the context of a person's life? Because the context of their life has a lot to do with their health. Do they have sufficient work? How is their relationship with people? Do they also need some psychological or emotional support? Uh, what alternative therapies could be available to them? And to do more robust uh, diagnostic intakes. And so that's, I think, starting to happen. People are starting to recognize we could create new models. and. Uh, that talk's fantastic. I'd recommend it. Um, and uh, you know, Do you remember who, who who it was? I'll have to look. You'd have to look up. You know, TED Talk, waiting room, new diagnostic <laughs> models. I don't know something. I wish I could remember, but I, I haven't seen it in maybe a couple of years. But but uh, you know, I think things are changing, and um, as long as we keep doing the best we can ourselves, and to hold that hold that for other people and hold that intention, then hopefully they'll change faster than slower. So. All right, thanks you guys. Thank you. We have time for one last question now. All right, we have one last question, then we gotta go to lunch. <laughs> Who am I? Yeah. It was just a, a quick question on um, what's the best type of movement or exercise for longevity? Uh, so you look at the blue zones and, and people there weren't running marathons or they're not Olympians or anything like that. They're, they're people, they're shepherds or people that do a lot of walking or, or gardening. Mm -hmm. so, so to get to the 120 years that you were talking about, mm. should we be giving up the marathons and, and doing more walking? Or what, what's the view of Chinese medicine I, I on that? I think that depends on the person. I think that's an individual thing. Uh, just like diet, I think exercise can be customized and I, for an ideal for a person. I like the idea of following seasons, so more active in the summer and in the, in the winter focusing more on quiet or more like yoga or things that are more stillness oriented or mindfulness oriented. Um, <clears throat> one thing is that um, one of my teachers went to China to study some of these villages that have huge concentrations of uh, centenarians. And he was trying to find out, oh, is there something they're doing that's different than other places? So like in one village, he found out they were drinking as their drink, like they drank it instead of water, basically, an herb called jaugalan, which is gynostema tea. They just drank the stuff all day long. It's incredibly rich, and in, it's one of the most antioxidant-rich 
foods you can consume and they were drinking it like water. Um, but in the places with extreme longevity, uh, they were finding that the exercise was usually like a lot of farming work. So it was a lot of like hands in the dirt. Uh, and it, it'd be dynamic movement in all directions, you know, different weights, different things. Um, but I think in terms of intentional movement, there are things like something called Bakun Daoyin, which is specific types of Qigong for longevity. That's the intention of the practice. And it's similar to uh, what you think of as Tai Chi uh, or Qigong, but it's really about cultivating uh, inner, inner strength, inner energy. Um, I'm happy to talk to you more about that. Um, but uh, there are there are specific longevity practices. Usually, they aren't extremely rigorous. That doesn't mean you don't. You might sweat like crazy, but you're you know you're like moving like this and finding that you're just sweating like a wild man, and you're going, <laughs> what's going on? You know, I don't know why this is such an intense workout. Um, so, and that's because you're in, you're the mind and body are working together, which is very challenging for most of us because we don't do that very often. You know, so. Cool. We're good. All right. Thank you, Colin. Beautiful. Thank you. That was great. I just love that guy so much. And I have to tell you, as an addendum, he's been an incredible influence on my two stepsons, Tyler and Trapper. Uh, they've really connected with him. They spent a lot of time with Colin, and he's sort of become a mentor to them. And it's something that's really beautiful to kind of watch. And it's a privilege and an honor to be able to share his amazing wealth of information with you guys. So I hope you enjoyed it. Do me a solid and track Colin down on Instagram. He's at living tea there and let him know what you thought of our conversation. Also, if you're intrigued about all this tea talk, maybe you just want to check out Colin's tea, the tea I drink, go to livingtea.net. I was going to say .com. It's livingtea.net. As I'm sure you can gather, Colin is very passionate about tea and his stuff truly is the best. As I mentioned at the outset, he just launched this new subscription service. It's called Tea Club, and it takes all the guesswork out of trying to figure out the differences between all these exotic varieties, especially because a lot of people have never heard of any of these, like what's the difference between oolong and pu'er, all that kind of stuff. So when you sign up on a quarterly basis, Colin will send you the best seasonably appropriate rare old growth teas, three to four teas per season, which also We'll include tons of information about the tea's origin, how to optimally brew it, as well as Chinese medical philosophy on how to live a healthy, longevity-focused life, including food suggestions and all kinds of other cool stuff. So to learn more about all of that, go to livingtea.net and click on Tea Club. Also, for listeners of this show, Colin has an awesome special offer. When you add the code RICHROLL at checkout, you'll get 12% off on your first season of Tea Club. And if you follow... Colin on Instagram at Living Tea, uh, and click through the link in his bio and purchase that way. You can also get 15% off on everything that he has in stock, which is awesome. Finally, if you sign up for his newsletter, you'll also be the first in line on future offerings and rebates that he's putting out to the world. And I should point out that Colin recently relocated to Denver, Colorado, where he's conducting these tea ceremonies for groups, and he's also working on opening a tea house next year. So if you happen to live in that region or perhaps you're passing through, I would definitely recommend you avail yourself of the opportunity to sit with him and enjoy a tea ceremony. It really is an amazing 
transcendent experience. Again, I get nothing from this. I'm not profiting whatsoever. Uh, I just love Colin. I think his stuff is amazing. It's the best. And I want you guys to check it out. Another reminder, uh, in celebration of my impending 51st birthday, I am committed to raising $51,000 for charity water to bring clean water to those most in need. And I really need your help to get there. So come on, people. This is the giving season. Uh, I don't want any gifts. I don't want you to mail me anything. I don't need a new tie or a new t-shirt or a pair of jeans. So please consider a one-time gift of $51, a dollar for every year I have been drinking clean water. Uh, and to learn more, Visit my campaign at my.charitywater.org forward slash rich roll. Uh, consider a gift. If you can't afford $51, whatever you uh, feel comfortable with is most appreciated. If you're feeling extra generous, of course, more is better. My.charitywater.org forward slash rich roll. I'll also put that link in the show notes on the episode page at richroll.com. Speaking of which, you should always visit the episode pages on my site. We put a ton of time and consideration into packing these pages with numerous links and helpful information related to the episode and the podcast guest to take your experience further and deeper. If you would like to support this show and my work in general, please share the podcast with your friends and on social media, leave a review on iTunes, hit that subscribe button. And also we have a Patreon set up for people who want to financially contribute to my work. But if you're considering donating a gift to me on Patreon, please consider uh, donating that money to Charity Water instead again at the aforementioned link. If you would like to receive a free short weekly email from me, I send one out every week. It's called Roll Call, five or six things I stumbled across over the course of the week. Generally, a few articles that I've enjoyed, uh, a video I watched, a documentary that uh, I viewed, or perhaps a product that I discovered that uh, I'm getting use out of, just things like that. No affiliate links. I'm not trying to make any money, just good stuff to share, especially as social media has become like so diffused and it's just so much noise even when i post things on facebook or whatever uh, you guys who are interested in what i'm doing don't get a chance to see it it doesn't come up on your feed so this is just a way of directly communicating with you guys and that's why i started it uh, if that interests or intrigues you you can subscribe by just entering your email address on any of those email capture windows on my website uh, I want to thank everybody who helped put on the show today. Jason Camiolo for audio engineering and production. He does all the audio on the show. Uh, also, he does a lot of work behind the scenes on the show notes and configuring the website page, all that kind of good stuff. Sean Patterson for help on graphics. David Zamet, who's recently come on board to begin videoing the podcast and taking amazing portraits of the guests. We're slowly getting up to speed, ramping up how we're... Um, going to be presenting this new material to you guys. I'm really excited about that, including configuring a new podcast studio, all kinds of cool stuff coming. And David is the guy behind that theme music, as always, by Analemma. But I should point out that quite often the interstitial music that you're hearing in the podcast are original compositions by Jason Camiello, the audio engineer. I don't, I don't know what music he's using today, but if you're enjoying it, you can hit him up at Jason Camiello on Twitter and Instagram, let him know that you're enjoying his work and uh, all of the uh, music that he has been selecting and sharing, much of which, again, is written by himself. Uh, also, hit up David on uh, Instagram as well, at David Zamet, Z-A-M-M-I-T. Let him know that you're appreciating all the work that he's doing into the photography and, and video work. Like I said, we're ramping up our YouTube page. I'm putting up about two videos a week right now. You can find that at youtube.com forward slash rich roll. Enjoy it if you like it. Please subscribe. And that's it, you guys. Thanks for the love. I'll be back here in a couple days with a brand new episode. I think the next episode up is Tarot 
Isa Kapila, the guy behind Four Sigmatic, the mushroom company, is to talk about mushrooms and their healing properties. It's really amazing. Uh, we went behind the scenes in a recent video that David shot. You can check that out on YouTube to get a glimpse or a feel for what that podcast conversation is all about. And that's coming up on late Sunday night, Monday morning for you guys. Until then, be well, live well. Peace, plants, and namaste. Yeah.